You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Well, welcome, Joe. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Drew. Yeah, this is very exciting for us. Um, in, in terms of uh, bios, I've confessed to Joe. I'm just going to embarrass her outright um, to start yeah. with. So, um, Joe, for me personally, you have been this guardian angel who has shepherded my activism from its early days. Uh, um, so I, I love you dearly, and this is really special um, for me. But I guess the rest of the world uh, know you in our part of the world, uh, the West Australian, which is a newspaper that um, some people might be familiar with. If you're not, it's not a bastion of uh, progressive social justice um, enlightened thought. It's um, a terrible newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and yet when they were choosing the top 100 most influential West Australians in history, you were in the mix. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, part of how that happened is uh, uh, your history of activism um, uh, and then uh, formally in terms of uh, formal political involvement with the People for Nuclear Disarmament Party, then as an independent, then as West Australia's first Green Senator over 30 years ago, uh, coming up now. Um, uh, you were a joint nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize um, with 50 women oh, around no, the world. Oh, no, there were a 1,000 women, <laughs> so it was never going to go anywhere. There a whole group of blokes who sit in Norway deciding who are going to get the Nobel Prizes. This was never going to fly. But a group of women made the gesture, you know. We can be a collective. Yeah. So I was just one of a 1,000 women. Yeah. Which sums up both your um, humility and your approach to the work, that it's communal work, it's a work that happens uh, in a circle, um, not at the top of a pyramid, mm. um, it, things that have influenced me uh, deeply. So we're so glad that you've set this time aside. Thank uh, you, Jared. And for those who are listening on, um, Joe and I are literally sh sharing headphones um, as we uh, talk with Drew now. As no, we shared beautiful. a bus into the centre of Australia to the desert. Well, that years was ago. October 2002. 2002. And that was my first ever potential <laughs> arrestable. Like we broke the law, but they didn't charge us. We all marched on uh, Pine Gap, the US military base, which you had actually been arrested. I'd been arrested there, there before. previously. Yeah. Um, and um, then took some young scallywags who were doing it for the first time. And I was, I was one of them. Yes, you were. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was an amazing trip. Yep. into the heart of Australia through the desert across the middle in a big old bus. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like some good stories there. Sounds yeah. like some good stories. So, you know, one of the things we like to do is dwell in scripture and just hear, um, you know, what, what kind of passages people are sitting with. And so, Joe, have you chosen a passage? And if so, can you read that for us? Yes, I have indeed. And I said to Jared, has somebody else nabbed this one already in your series? And he said, no, which surprises me. So here we go. This is uh, probably not a surprise considering my story is uh, from Isaiah uh, chapter two. <sighs> he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. 
I, I can't think of anything more appropriate for you <laughs> to choose, um, Joe. Uh, now, many people will know you. Um, uh, you you've been quite outspoken in terms of your Quakerism and how that has um, fostered and undergird so much of your own activism. Um, but you didn't grow up a Quaker. When do you first remember encountering the Bible? And um, well, maybe we'll just start there. When do you first remember encountering the Bible? Yes, well, it's, uh, I grew up a Catholic and went to a convent primary school where I learned to read in the very same room where the little group of Quakers now meet in no a country way. town. It's very strange, full circle. <laughs> so I was there just a, a month or so back, sitting in the very room where I learned to read. Uh, from the Presentation Sisters, and then I went on to boarding school at Loretto. And it was there that we studied the New Testament. Uh, we studied it in detail, so much detail that now I've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all confused. But, you know, we did one <laughs> each year. And I reckon we were very good at, uh, yeah, the New Testament. But I reflected later that the Old Testament wasn't really um, part of the conversation, wow. hmm. which is interesting, isn't hmm. it? And then when I read the New Testament for myself, I thought, oh, perhaps that's why the nuns didn't voice it upon us because it's full of rather a lot of bloodshed and vitriol and fighting back and all of that sort of stuff. So, and yet our, our Jewish brothers and sisters don't seem to do as many awful things as, a, as Christians do. So maybe, <laughs> right. yeah. maybe it's who we're reading it with. That's and how we probably yeah. right. That's probably right. Yes. Yeah. So the, the Catholic education, I'm very glad I had it, I must say. Uh, the nuns at Loretto were great, and this was an all-girls boarding school, great for saying, well, you could be a doctor, you could be an engineer, you could be a lawyer, you could be a scientist. Mm. But they never said how you could combine that with the biggest job of all, which is parenting and motherhood. We're mm. all girls. So they and they didn't have that experience themselves. I figured out later, you know, right, at the yeah. time I was thinking, well, they you know, once you get into that role, which was a big issue for me, I didn't take it for granted by any means becoming a, a parent. But, you know, the nuns didn't have that experience but they did have experience in going into places where uh, were traditionally, you know, for men mm. and going back to the founding of the Loretto order. That was Mary Ward in the 1500s. She was extraordinary. Yeah. She traipsed across Europe and got herself into scrapes with the law and especially with the hierarchy of the church. Church authorities. Yeah. yeah. Church the, authorities. These are uh, proto-feminists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was a good start. You know, it's a good grounding, really. It's a great yeah. start. Mm. Yeah. So as you think about um, your encounters with Scripture, with New Testament and then Old Testament, and, like, do you, do you remember them as, like, did you encounter them as being liberative, as liberating or as oppressive, as upholding the status quo, as freeing? Like, how did you... Uh, encounter and experience these scriptures? Well, it, it's, I think I recognize that uh, Jesus Christ was a very special person. So, you know, he's a good guy. That was clear. That was okay. And then the nuns had this thing. We always had these little mission boxes in the classroom. So you'd put your extra pennies and so on into the mission boxes. And it occurred to me then that we were going, Catholics in particular, were going with the Bible to try and help people, in inverted commas, in countries 
less well off than we were. So we, uh, there's a good so a dose of social justice in there, but definitely with the religious message attached. And I think that, you know, as I got older, I, you know, came to challenge that somewhat as I realised that the Catholic Church uh, had major flaws and uh, so I started to search elsewhere. But that feeling that we could help people in other countries and indeed in our own country who are less well off was a, a very important demonstration of the Christianity, which I think is, is, um, is absolutely valid and, and uh, you know, should be applauded that we can share our resources. That was a very important message. Mm. Yeah, and uh, that compassion particularly the stories about Jesus showing compassion to women at the well and mm. that kind of thing resonated very strongly. Mm. Mm. There was a lot of compassion in his stories. So, Joe, um, I'm, I'm fascinated. One of the questions we always ask is um, if you were to gift your life experiences or your worldview to others when reading these sacred texts, the, the things that um, might not have initially been there uh, but are so important for you as um, you, you read Isaiah 2 now, um, uh, what would those things be? But in particular, I want to ask about your journey with Quakerism and how you found this home. Our, our friend David Johnson, who uh, drew, he's an amazing Australian Quaker scholar who's uh, in the north of Queensland. Um, mm. He talks about uh, this tension in Quakerism uh, where it is um, uh, focused on Christ, um, but it's Christ in everyone and so there's this universal and particular mm. um uh, it's this way of saying yes this story but this story found across all traditions uh that know nothing of this story um th this tension which uh has become so important for your experience of um what has held your activism when did you first come across quakers what context what did you initially think well, I think it's when I was traveling and I was in uh, Mexico wow. and I found that there was some, um, you know, this is what turned me away from the Catholic Church, actually. It was the, the shrine on the hill, Maria del Guadalupe, on the outskirts of Mexico, probably right in the middle of Mexico City by now. But, you know, there were the peasants on their knees going from the gates of this basilica into the basilica and it was dotted with little tiny replicas of mm. broken bits of people's bodies in gold. Mm. So here are poverty-stricken peasants going in their knees to a church. I do believe in spiritual healing. That wasn't the problem. But the, the fact that it had to be kind of paid for mm. with gold by people who had very little, mm. you know, that really bothered me. Anyway, I started looking around other churches, and sorry if I'm offending anybody here <laughs> by saying that when I went to other churches, I thought, oh, they're even worse in some ways, <laughs> hellfire and damnation. You know, where's the love? Where's the compassion? Where's the gentility of Jesus yeah. in yeah. these messages? Mm. Now, I didn't really find it. Mm. So yeah. then somebody suggested I should go to a Quaker meeting and I've been there ever since, since 1972. In, in Australia when yes, somebody suggested was, that? I was in Australia and a friend of mine who saw me sort of struggling with going to the Presbyterians or the Anglicans or whatever, other Christian denominations, mm. oh, and the Baha'is. I, I yeah. went to the Baha'is for some time. Lovely, mm, yeah. wonderful people. Yeah. Now, mm. they have a very strong social justice ethic within their own communities, yes. yeah. but they didn't seem to look out very far. Yeah. And, they, and, and the nature of Baha'i forming in such a oppressive society yes. that 
um, uh, like civil disobedience mm. isn't a part of no, their no, tradition. It's actually compliance not. for survival, um, even though they have this peace ethic at the centre of who their community is. That's right. Yeah. So it it there was a struggle for me then. This was long before I had anything to do with politics in a formal right. sense, long before. But I thought, you know, their aversion to getting involved in politics because it's really grubby, obviously, mm. and from their history, they know that to be so. And I thought, well, God needs our hands, you know. Mm. Uh, we're part of this. We've got to work together and people yeah. are important to mm. help that process of justice come to fruition. And um, so a friend who was... Uh, had been and done the England trip thing, which a mm. lot of young Australians did at that stage, and I had already done too. Uh, she said, I went to Quaker meeting in London, and I think you might like those people. They're, they're kind of down to earth and they sit quietly and they do stuff. They mm. do stuff in the community. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I thought, okay. So along I went, and I have been there ever since, since 1972. And uh, it was like a coming home to this mm. group that met in silence and yet had very strong social justice activism. And some of my mentors were from that group. There were about mm. 10 of them, oldies, probably younger than I am now, but, you know, they seemed old at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, they were brilliant, you know. Yeah. They'd be on street corners, you know, holding up their uh, placard saying disarmament, east and west. Mm. So we were called communists and worse, you know, that whole thing. That shouldn't be a bad label, by the way, but anyway... And, uh, yeah, so they were very inspiring and they got me to read books and, you know, then there was one who would say, I gave you that book last week. What did you think of the idea in Chapter 6? And I think, ah, you know, <laughs> I was held to account. So it was really uh, quite challenging but, you know, in a very good way. They were supportive and I certainly got encouraged to be an activist from that bunch of Quakers. And I, I guess this would be um, like the Vietnam War is still in the air. Yes. Like, mm. um, to, to encounter Quakers at that time, um, is, is that where your own peace activism grew out of? Yes, it did really. I think mm. so because my ah. first nonviolence training workshop was conducted by a, a couple of Quakers mm. and others. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, this is a good way to go. You know, this is really terrific because you can actually be respectful and yet be challenging mm. uh, to the authority. So, yeah, I learned a lot from that very, very first workshop in nonviolence. Mm. And um, so I've been engaged in that pathway ever since. That's why this passage from Isaiah is very important to mm. me because swords into plowshares, what are we doing? We yeah. are wasting trillions of dollars and massive amounts of human energy and person power on developing new and better, in inverted commas, weapons of destruction, mm. including the yeah. ones of mass destruction still out right. there. Mm. You know, it offends me. It, it should offend anybody that we are right. wasting so much of our human resources. So during COVID, to come right back to the present moment, I started my own little campaign on demilitarization. Mm. I mean, it hasn't gone very far, I can tell mm. you, because mainstream media doesn't want to hear this, but there are some good groups like Beyond War yep. in the United mm -hmm. States and others mm -hmm. that are on this same pathway. And yeah. I was trying to make it relevant in the Australian context because according to SIPRI, that's the Swedish Institute for, for Swedish 
International Peace Research Institute, they do an annual tally of who is spending what on weapons. Mm. And Australia came in at number 13. Goodness. Now, mm. we've got no actual enemies. Yeah. We're an island continent, for goodness sake. Mm. We have mm -hmm. so many advantages. We're number 13 in the mm. world in spending on weapons. And our prime minister before this one declared that he wanted Australia to be in the top 10 arms exporters in the world. Wow. I mean, it's wow. just ridiculous. Yeah. So, But to get that kind of message about the insanity of that through into the mainstream of the Australian population, it's really hard because mm. we're hooked into the American alliance yeah. to our detriment yeah. and to everybody's detriment, I'd say. Right. Yeah. And, and sometimes Australians don't realise, and this is all Joe's lines quoted back at her after years and years of listening to Joe, that... Um, uh, Americans have these same alliances with most of our neighbours who Australia would potentially be threatened by, with the exception of China. Mm. But in terms of Indonesia, in terms of Malaysia, in terms of like, um, so Australia sometimes assumes that there's this special relationship with the US that will see us safe instead of investing in peace. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a fool's game. Well, the politicians tell us that. What a special relationship we've got. And if the American Secretary... Uh, of state or their defence people come here, that's what they tell us. But they tell everybody that, you know, special <laughs> right. relationship. Right. Give us your money, give us your land for bases. We have Marines in Darwin, in the Northern uh, Territory of Australia. We have spy base at, that Jared and I went to in 2002 in the middle of our beautiful desert. Uh, we serve the American military in so many ways. Mm. Yeah. And it's like a sacred cow. In mm. Australia, it is very, very hard to get traction, even though when, you know, you uncover, uh, I mean, during the Trump regime, that has been especially challenging. But the uh, Australian politicians were very careful mm. not to badmouth Donald Trump too much. You yeah. know, one did call him a raving lunatic, I think, at one point. But mostly they've been very careful, you know, not to say anything which could, you know, uh, get us into trouble with yeah. our great friend and allies, which is different from how they're treating China. And then at the moment, we seem to being uh, be forced to choose. Uh, China is setting us up for this, I think, and the Americans, of course, playing along with that, to choose between our great trading partner, of course, China is everybody's great mm -hmm. trading partner, and the alliance with the United States. So we're in a, a cleft si stick situation, mm. but it's yeah. pretty stupid. And Joe... 1984 was when you gave your first speech in Parliament. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember that because I watched the recent Midnight Oil a documentary, 1984, oh. and uh, they, they talk about how Peter Garrett didn't get in, but you got in, and there were photos of <laughs> uh, a young, young Josephine Valentine uh, featured in it. But in that initial speech in Parliament, you talked about the 20 uh, US military bases at the time, which has actually increased, not decreased. Um, uh, we're about um, to allow you to um, open up um, the text with us, but I would really like to hear about um, how you keep going in this work. I don't want to preempt the questions, Drew, but um, let's make sure we get to, you've been at this for such a long time um, and been such a huge influence on so many of us. And yet so many people who are at this work often um, get so worn down, um, so cynical, um, uh, so, um, uh, despairing mm -hmm, um, that mm -hmm. it's it's amazing to see you um, still walking so lightly um, uh, with this work yet so fiercely determined and uncompromising 
in this vision of peace. So let's make mm. sure we, we do get there by the time we finish through. Yeah. Do you want me to say something about that now? Because <laughs> I could. You see, there's a there's a date, there's a time. Hmm. And it was about parenting, you know, which I did allude to earlier. I wasn't going to become a mother or produce more human beings for the world to have to cope with and I made, unless I made this promise to myself. It was just to me, but everybody knows about it now if they, if they ask me, that um, I would work for peace and justice if I'm bringing more uh, human beings into the world. I've mm. got to work for peace and justice until I drop dead. Yeah. So I'm continuing with that. My daughter is my elder daughter is now uh, nearly 42. So that's how long I've been actively involved, but it's nearly 50 years since I got, first got involved with Quakers. Mm. And uh, the thing is, dipping into a spiritual well for renewal, I think, is the key. Mm. And mm. I don't know how activists who are atheists or agnostics actually manage. And Often they don't. They do burn out because they haven't got that spiritual well or the bigger picture. And I find that from nature largely yeah. through the work of someone like Joanna Macy, the work yeah. that reconnects, you know, we're see seeing ourselves as part of a huge system of magnificence. You know, the world yeah. is a magical place. It's this tiny little planet that we've got. We're trashing it at the moment, but it is perhaps just recoverable. Mm. And uh, we've got to work very, very hard. So the anti-nuclear work, the demilitarization work is also linked into the climate crisis that's and right. everything else. They're all connected. And that's connected. the message of Joanna Macy. And she has these amazing workshops, which Jared and I participated in together, a 30-day workshop, a full hmm. moon cycle down yeah. in the southwest of this state, where we kind of track the moon and ourselves as part of the natural processes and mm. it's very very strengthening because you know we realize i mean we're not alone in this mm. there are creatures the living world can support us we are children of the universe mm. and the universe actually wants us to do well mm. wants us to do well if only we would tap into that magic on a daily yeah. basis so yeah. daily spiritual practice i think yeah. is really important yeah, no, that's so good. So, you know, when I, so I originally am from Philly, where I feel like uh, I'm more connected with the Anabaptist Mennonite world, but in Philly, Mennonites and Quakers, they're just cousins and they get along pretty well. <laughs> but I remember in hanging out in Germantown, um, that section of Philly, and I was getting more involved in activism some. And then I decided a couple of times to um, go to the Quaker meeting house. And um, two things. One, I realized I knew people there that I didn't even know were Quakers, um, but who were involved in activism and stuff, which maybe just maybe makes sense. Um, but also, as you were saying, like, I mean, just that time, um, it was just uh, it. It was a profoundly meaningful time of me connecting with God in a different way than I think I had certainly been formed to do, right? Um, and so I deeply appreciate that tradition um, and the ways that, at least for at least some of my friends that have embodied, you know, what it means, I think, to um, live faithfully in resistance to all the militarism and violence and racism and all that that's going on in our world. And so I'm really grateful for that. So I'm really excited to hear how all of that, right, how that will feed into you walking us through this text in Isaiah that you've picked. Can you share with us um, um, the significance of this uh, meaningful passage? As you say, it's surprising that so few, at least for our show, haven't, no one's picked that yet. Um, so we're really excited that you can uh, help us dwell in this text. 
Now, Joe, did you choose that music to, to play to accompany you opening up this text? It was, no. a, was that your phone? I'm sorry. No, it was, it was awesome. Oh, it was, I was, like, was. It was, it was I'm not sure if you could hear that, Drew. That was, I heard just a little bit, right? Yeah, there, there, there was a, a setup. Hollywood dance party yeah, sorry. in the next room. It was fantastic. <laughs> so, Joe, when you think of this text, and I, I remember you um, uh, sharing on this text when we were into uh, Solo City. Oh, yes. Java, yes. Indonesia, yes. Um, in 2007 for the International uh, Peace Church um, Gathering. Mm, mm -hmm. Yes. Well, it's amazing to me that more people don't refer to it, not just for your program, but in general. I mean, mm. surely this is a major message of the Bible mm, and yeah. of Jesus himself. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. It's, it's a major message that yep. we should find ways to deal with our problems and disagreements with each other uh, other than through violence. I mean, we mm. try and teach our children that. You mm. don't have to hit somebody or you shouldn't to get your own way. Mm. Uh, let's find another way. So it, it, it surprises me that it's not more front and center. It's sometimes given lip service but we don't really do it. I mean, yeah. the mainstream churches don't address this issue at all, yeah, at right. all. Despite Jesus. Despite <laughs> Jesus. And <laughs> I mean, I would have thought that nonviolence was a major message, beating their swords into plowshares. There's that beautiful example of it outside the United Nations building in New York. And I can remember going to a, a special conference on disarmament in 1988, I think it was, in New York. And there were all these men walking around in briefcases, representing their governments and everything. And I thought, they're not going to get anywhere on this. Mm. They're not. And I just went out and wept into the Hudson River. You know, it was just mm. awful because there's that symbol that nations shall turn their spears into pruning hooks, build something, make something, cultivate the land, feed people. Let's do all of that nations not taking up swords or weapons against other nations and they won't train for war anymore yeah. now we spend a lot of money training young people women and men to kill other people it is not normal in the human makeup mm. a few psychopaths uh, seem to enjoy it but they're very few and far between the actual psychopaths so we have to train our military people uh, diligently mm. with great um, emphasis on, you know, being strong and powerful and doing what's best for the country. Well, it's not best for anybody. Our military people come back, and I know it happens in the United States as well, yep. and they commit suicide all over the place. Veterans are not yep. healthy because they've seen dreadful right. things. Mm. And we have just had a most awful report presented to the Australian people, the Brereton Report, which yeah. indicates that soldiers in our special special services who are meant to be you know the creme de la creme uh they actually encouraged each other not all of them of course this is an exceptional few to get their first blooding their first killing by just killing innocent afghani people in that mm. longest war that we've ever been engaged in and that america's probably ever been engaged in as well mm. we shouldn't be there I know that sounds cruel, but we should be helping people on the ground through the NGOs and through community to community work to make lives better in Afghanistan, not bombing them to bits and not killing innocent mm. people. Um, 
wanton killing. It's yeah. just awful. So we train people very hard to do that killing. And then when they do it, and people keep on talking about this being a great service to the nation, I think it's a huge disservice to the nation, to our nation and to the world, that we allow this to happen. Now, that's on the conventional weapons side of things. But the um, weapons of mass destruction, even more so. Mm. So we've got uh, a very lovely breakthrough happening, whether it will actually get rid of the nuclear weapons or not, I don't know. But January the 22nd, I'd like everybody to put it into their diaries and celebrate the fact that the United Nations has now got a treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. They yes. will be officially illegal. Entry into force happens on January the 22nd because now 52 nations have not only signed but ratified. That means they can sign it in New York at the United Nations. They've got to take home that initiative to their own parliaments or the equivalents of, and their own governments have to agree to adhere to it. Australia, of course, hasn't signed that because of our alliance with the United States. Right. But 52 countries have, and we will be trying to persuade our alternative government whenever they get into office. They've said they'll ratify it, but, you know, I'm afraid I don't really trust them all that much, <laughs> <laughs> sadly. Yeah. So we have a lot of work yet to do, but there will be a treaty on the table, enforceable. So it's a bit like the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Biological mm. Weapons Convention. Even though all of the countries that had those weapons didn't sign those conventions, they have more or less agreed to them because they realise they've got absolute pariah status if they continue to manufacture chemical and biological weapons. Mm. So there are less weapons around than when I started. When uh, I began this, there were 60,000 nuclear weapons in the world. There are now about 15,000, which you would think was a big step forward, but they're more powerful and more deadly mm. than those 60,000 were and more finely targeted. But, you know, we've really got to get rid of those weapons. So this yeah, is yeah. the challenge for our global community. The United yeah. Nations 17 Global Development Goals could all be met easily if the money that we were wasting yeah. on weapons globally was spent on those sustainable development goals they're That's about right. feeding people giving people the dignity of a guaranteed yeah. basic income mm. giving people shelter respecting all kinds of people everywhere we've all got a right to be on this planet and we all have a right yeah. to share in the blessed resources that are so magnificently out there, but which we yeah. are jeopardising because we're not dealing with climate change mm. and it's all connected. Yeah, yeah, so one it of is all connected. I, I really appreciate um, about Quakers don't merely want to um, uh, say war is wrong. They want to get to the causes of war that mm. actually are underneath. And mm -hmm. I, I think mm -hmm. of what you've emphasised even in this text, that it's not really merely a matter of getting rid of our swords, but actually doing something um, with all those things in a direction that does look like a new world. That the very right. things that we're using to kill each other can be used to feed each other mm, mm. Um, uh, if we actually realise what time it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I would love if, if you would talk about how um, uh, Quakerism holds out that vision because Quakers don't hold creeds and yet there are these testimonies mm. um, that, um, uh, to, to quote um, George Fox, um, uh, you, you can quote, I'm going to misquote it, but you can quote Christ and you can quote the scriptures, but what thou dost, 
What dost thou say? What dost thou say? Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's about your own experience yeah. mm. of, of the Most High, of, mm. of the Divine, mm. of, of the mystery. Mm. Um, uh, would you talk a little bit about um, about that and how that feeds your work? Yes, well, I think Drew alluded to it earlier when he was talking about the Quaker meeting he attended in Philadelphia. That quiet, expectant waiting, no creeds, no formal stuff happening in the uh, uh, non-programmed tradition anyway. There is another tradition of mm. Quakerism which does have ministers and does have a set uh, program for worship. But the silent meetings for worship are very, very powerful yeah. because in that expectant waiting there's no agenda but out of the silence some inspiration will often come. The still small voice will emerge for somebody or other in the meeting and they will speak or not. You might have a whole hour of silence, which is in itself quite magical in these days of great busyness. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. And Quakers have uh, amazing uh, offices in New York and in Geneva, CUNO, yeah. Quaker United Nations Organization. And they have um, you know, NGO status at the United Nations, as a lot of NGOs do. But what the Quakers do, which I think is rather wonderful, is that they organise uh, lunches for the diplomats and they particularly choose people whose countries are having some difficulty with each other, struggling mm. over this or that. It might be something about demilitarisation or child soldiers or looking after the children of prisoners in any jails in anywhere in the world any number of issues and they they choose the they, they invite people uh, not usually the ambassadors maybe the second in command and they have these home cooked lunches hmm. in geneva and in new york and their chatham house rules no reporting and you get this sense of these people actually listening to each other mm. and for mm. the first time realising maybe that they've got more in common than the differences. And so I think they often go back to their ambassadors and say, you know, we could try this or we could do that or that clause is really what's holding up this agreement. Let's get rid of that clause and do something else. So they just offer a peaceful opportunity for people to really talk to each other. We're great believers in diplomacy mm, yeah. and of course the diplomatic core <coughs> from the Australian perspective has been slashed slashed right. slashed we are not looking to build good relationships uh, actively and that's what we should be doing so Quakers are very very keen to build good relationships with our neighbours any neighbours anywhere on the planet we've got a lot more in common than we have differences between us mm. and to highlight that and to see that uh, through the eyes of Jesus, because that's what, what his message was, mm. we accept everybody, not just tolerate, actually accept and build community with mm. uh, everyone on the planet. And there'd be enough to go around. We know that there'd be enough food for everybody. There'd be if we shared the resources better. Yeah. Mm. No, that's so good. And so I'll go back since you're you're making me you're, you're bringing back memories of my time at the meeting. And I stayed for the business meeting. Right. And just the conversation right. and the consensus yeah. building and the it was live. And I was just thinking because and I'm sure Jared's heard me talk about like my value for wanting to see in more churches dialogical space. And mm. so just to be in community, to learn how to dialogue, even in conflict and difference, um, like, I do think like what we practice in community helps us in terms of what we bring out into the world, right? Yes. Um, it shapes us in terms, and I do think that's so beautiful in terms of 
um, just the consensus and the dialoguing over difference and working things out in community together with the, dif the differences just coming up to the surface, right? Um, that that is actually a really, uh, I guess what, what you are describing in terms of the way that Quakers embrace everyone, I think is deeply shaped. I imagine that that's got to shape them in terms of the work that they do in, in the broader society. Yeah. Drew, we're just losing you a little, but um, I, oh. I think if I did catch you, um, uh, you were saying how the, the practice of meeting, particularly meeting for, for business um, and meeting for worship, um, shape who Quakers are in the world generally. Yeah, yeah. So we yeah, Can I, I tell don't know a little story about that? The, uh, the very first time I went to a big Quaker, meet, Quaker meeting was in 1974. In I went to the London Yearly Meeting, as it was then called. There were 1,200 people there. And I was amazed at the way the clerk of the meeting listened to lots of different views, and then there was silence, and then a minute, a minute is written to record the sense of the meeting. It's much more than consensus. Actually, it is mm. a deep unity of spirit and if we don't find unity we don't make a decision we leave yeah. it for another time there are some funny uh, stories about that too about yeah, how long yeah. it took a certain meeting in the united states to get uh central heating because there was somebody who said well our ancestors didn't have central heating so why should we so they actually had to wait for somebody to die i think before they got their <laughs> central heating but anyway this meeting in london so there I was, and there were lots of uh, discussions going on about different things, and there'd be the silence, and the clerk would come up with a, a, a minute, and you could just feel that the people in the room, 1,200 of them, agreed with it. Mm. They might make a couple of little amendments here or there, but basically they were in unity. But there was one discussion about alcohol, and somebody wanted a minute to say that Quakers should not drink alcohol, you know. So there was quite a bit of back and forth and the, there were a number of views put forward. And finally, somebody got up and said, look, there are those of us who drink and there are those of us who don't. And each group should pray for the other. Mm. And it was almost like there was a round of applause, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't have to have a statement. Yeah. You leave it up to the individual to discern, you know, what is okay or what is right for them. Mm, we don't yeah. like rules and regulations that prohibit this or encourage yeah. that. We, we have the testimonies, as Jared said, to simplicity and to peace and to integrity. The Quakers yeah. never bargained for prices, you know, mm. in the early days. So they were trusted in business because they set a price on something and that was the price. They didn't want to argy-bargy or try to do a deal, mm. you know, which would um, benefit them at the expense of the, somebody the else. The art of the deal. The art. <laughs> <laughs> so, <no. laughs> oh my, oh my. Yeah. No, that's good, that's good. Which in yeah. part, one of the things that fascinates me so much, Joe, is that much of the Peace Church traditions um, uh, outside of Quakerism almost have um, what the early uh, Hicksite um, uh, characteristics of a separation of the world. Mm. Um, so in the 18th century, uh, the two traditions of Quakerism being the more evangelical, uh, which was about uh, prison reform, suffragette movement, um, uh, child labour, um, and saw themselves as a part of this larger, what at the time evangelical didn't mean what it means today. Mm. It was mm. a socially progressive social action um, uh, that of God in everyone to use mm -hmm. a Quaker term mm -hmm. for a larger 
Um, and the, the Hicksite movement um, was a quietus, separate. Um, we don't want to be involved in that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet in the lead up, um, particularly to the first and second war, it was almost out of this waiting, out of this practice, which Drew is highlighting, came this deep depth um, of a universal vision, which then became as the um, uh, evangelicals, particularly in America, and to some extent in the UK as well, um, uh, became part of a more conservative vision. Um, this uh, quietus group became very loud out of their um, practice of silence. Mm -hmm. And um, your involvement in politics, uh, as somebody who's part of the, under the umbrella of the peace church tradition, um, would you talk about some of the tensions that I think Quakerism is uniquely um, skilled, gifted, equipped um, uh, with, with processes and practices to sustain someone um, in what is, you described earlier, is it's a very messy business, politics. Mm -hmm. Like being a senator and yet having these convictions, um, uh, would you speak particularly to those of us who attempted to... Um, uh, keep our hands clean of the filthy rotten system, as Dorothy Day would say. Um, how, how do we be in the midst of that and yet walk with integrity? Hmm. Yeah, it is fun. I, 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 yeah, when you were just introducing that thought, uh, I was reminded of a letter I got from a Quaker saying, you know, your behaviour really isn't appropriate for Quakers, this getting arrested, because I got arrested a number of times as a senator. The other senators hated it, of course, because it, it gave me a platform to speak out about issues that I thought were important, but it also showed them up to some extent, yeah. and uh, they thought that I was um, denigrating the role of senator, which is very privileged on the red leather seats, you see. Anyway, this one Quaker wrote to me and said, you know, your behaviour, really, uh, I'm challenging it. And I said, I think you must have forgotten our history. That's right. You must have forgotten that Quakers began in the days when there was a lot of turbulence in the 1650s in England, mm. and they went to prison numerous times, died in prison, yeah. hundreds of them, right. for standing up for their beliefs. So, you know, that even from within the Quakers, there was a, a misunderstanding, I think. But most Quakers uh, sort of supported me uh, in doing what I thought I should be doing. Mm. But it was... Um, it is, a, it is a filthy business, but I determined when I went in there that I wouldn't resort to the same kind of behaviours that a lot of others did, shouting out abuses across the chamber and, you know, denigrating others and, and tearing people down kind of thing. I broke that rule twice um, in the eight years. <laughs> and one was just when, uh, well, in, in, in the Senate, when um, the Labor Party people were supporting Bob Hawke, taking us into the Gulf War Mark One. Yeah. You know, I said, oh, this, this is just goes against all that you are meant to stand for. That's I right. did say across the chamber. Anyway, later in that same day, uh, there were hundreds of people who'd gone by bus from Canberra and Sydney to uh, Canberra and uh, from Melbourne and Sydney to Canberra on buses to protest Australia going into war in the Gulf. And um, the president of the Senate uh, sent a message to me saying, your supporters are going to cause the galleries to be shut down because they were clambering and they were banging on the perspex at the top where the kids usually sit mm. watching this drama unfold beneath yeah, them. Drew, we let school children 
watch these adults argue in the in a way that if they were arguing like that in you know the playground they wouldn't be get away with discipline that's right. right they no, wouldn't no. no and I, i'm always embarrassed i was always embarrassed when school kids came in and saw this i think oh no they're witnessing the worst behavior anyway so they said uh, threatened to shut the galleries down so i and they said your supporters and i said well they're not just my supporters they're people who are opposed to war mm. and they're from across the political spectrum anyhow I went up and I said, well, if you really want to listen to what the turkeys are saying down below, you better quieten things down. And then I thought, I better go over into the other place, which is the House of Reps, mm. where the Prime Minister was talking about this war and how we were supporting, you know, the uh, call for Saddam Hussein to be put in his place. And there's a special uh, box at the top of the uh, gallery for senators only. And I just, it was the first time and probably the only time that I've done something quite as dramatic as this without preparing. Because usually right. I prepare, yeah. you know, spiritually and physically and in every other way, emotionally, for committing an act of civil disobedience or holy obedience, as I call it, holy yeah. obedience to a higher law. That's anyway, right. I found myself on my feet and I was shouting out to the Prime Minister, you said we'd never go to war again. We just had the 75th anniversary of Gallipoli, which yeah. is a terrible story in Australian history, but it's revered for some quirky, strange reason. Yeah. And I, on the 75th anniversary of that, Bob Hawke, as the Prime Minister, said, we won't be sending Australian uh, troops to fight in foreign wars. He'd actually said that. And here he was committing us to going to the Middle East. So I said, you said we'd never do that. And the whole place froze, you know, and the Prime Minister looked up from his seat and saw that it was me and the other people in the House of Reps saying, go back to the other side, go back to where you came from. <laughs> I had no right to speak in there, you see. And then what happened was that the guards who look after the galleries had come running down to get rid of this troublesome uh, agitator and saw that it was a senator. So then it was, I was a bit like the queen. They couldn't touch me. <laughs> They're not allowed to touch me. And so I mustered all the dignity I could. And I said, you know, this is a shameful day. And I got up and I walked out myself, of wow. course. But the next day I ran into the Speaker of the House. And I said, I think I owe you an apology because I put the guards into a difficult position. Mm. They didn't know what to do. And the Speaker of the House didn't really know what to do with this interjector. And he said, well, you certainly owe me an apology. And I said, oh, OK. So I went back to my office and I wrote a letter of apology to the Speaker and the members of the House of Representatives. And I started off by saying I apologise to the staff for causing them confusion and dismay mm. that they were put into a very difficult position by my behaviour. So I said I was very sorry to the staff. I was sorry to the speaker, but I did not resile from what I said to the Prime Minister. So I put it all again in the mm. letter and they had to read it out. <laughs> <laughs> I had That's a second good. go, you know. <laughs> and then I discovered later that they'd set up a special committee to deal with troublesome senators. Wow. A special committee. It never came to much, but they did set one did up. Did they name it after you, Joe? No, <laughs> they didn't. That but would be I an honour. Trouble, right. Yeah, troublesome senators. So it was pretty funny, really, the whole thing. But, you know, that's the 
but I really tried. I thought if I want them to listen to me, I've got to listen to them yeah. with respect. And yeah. I treated everybody with respect. And I discovered that there's, again, the same old story. There's much more in common than there are differences. Mm. So you can meet people wherever they are on the political spectrum and find some point of engagement so that your story can be listened to. Mm. So, you know, that happened, I think, overall in my eight years in the Senate. Wow. That's good. That's Drew, good. Drew, I have so many questions, but I don't want to cut you off. We've got a slight delay. Did, did you want to go next? Or, or yeah, yeah. Off? Well, I think um, when I was thinking about just some of what you were saying, Joe, about Quakers. So um, I, I always draw back to my own experience in, um, in Philly. And one of the things that was interesting when I went there, um, so I was just observing and kind of being present. Um, and they knew that I was connected to like Midnight Anabaptist. And so one of the things that was fascinating, and I think we've had this conversation once before, Jared, um, was they were acknowledging in the US history, there's this kind of complicated history around um, speaking out against slavery. And mm. so in 1683, there's this kind of hybrid Mennonite Quaker group that comes to Germantown, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And then in 1688, um, there's this written... Um, petition um, that's moved up through the Quakers um, against slavery that comes from this Germantown group. And so what's interesting, as I was there, the Quakers are, they were all saying, oh, we can't, we try to take too much credit is really the Mennonites. But it's interesting, mm. when you go to the Mennonites and they're like, we take too much credit. It was really the, the Quakers, right? And so they're both kind of shifting mm. and not taking yeah. credit. Um, but I do believe, I have a deep, deep belief given what we know about Mennonite history in general and, and um, Quaker history in general, in terms of their petition, their, their, um, the ways in which they engage the questions of slavery on the ground, Mennonites were more consistent probably from the very beginning to be against slavery, but they were always quietest. They never did anything about it. They never spoke up, right? Mm. And Quakers, they weren't initially, but when they did, they were way more vocal and they became really radical abolitionists. And so I do think Mm. there's something interesting about the kind of public uh, expression that they made at that time in 1688 that I do think is attributed to Quakerism, even if maybe some of the convictions early on were that slavery is wrong, helping from the Mennonite side. I think the the actually acting and living that out with integrity, right? I think uh, that Quakerism brought that even at a very early point in 1688, um, that mm. you can kind of see that doesn't really happen throughout Mennonite history in the United States. Um, they just more practiced that they weren't going to engage in it themselves, but they, mm. re- they didn't really say much to the broader society about um, their engagement. So I'm curious if what you th- think about my analysis, that's my take on both the mm. kind of pushing back and giving each other credit, but also what Quakerism kind of brought their contribution to that was that they actually had a public voice in a way that, that uh, Mennonites did not have at that time. Yeah, well, I think that fits in with the title of your recent book, Being Witnesses, mm. right. uh, you right. know, witnessing to what you believe. And uh, yeah, I think Quakers have done that. 
but sometimes I want them to do it much more, you know, sure. for me. Sure. They're yeah. sometimes slow and, you know, pondering and discerning and yeah, 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 that's yeah. all good, really. Of mm. course, I know that's the right way to go. But sometimes I think we miss certain buses because yeah. we're not, you know, snappy enough. They're not taking things up quickly. Mm. But yeah. over the years, yes. But at the very beginning, John Warman, who's one of our mm. very revered yeah. Quakers. Yeah. Uh, you would visit people who were slaveholders. Quakers had slaves. Mm, I mean, right. everybody did yep. in those days. If you were a white fella, you had slaves. You know, <laughs> that's the thing. Sorry, sorry. But he would um, not help them with uh, managing their slaves or if they he went to stay in someone's house, he would give the slaves some money for the services they'd provided to him. Right. And this, he wasn't saying to the other Quakers, you shouldn't have slaves, but he was demonstrating by his own actions that yeah. he thought it was wrong. So he was very gentle with the way he did it for a number of years. And then he got more vocal too, yeah, as they radical. all did. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, starting uh, slowly and seeing people where they are, accepting people where they are, not being judgmental or prescriptive about what people should do, I think is an important part of the Quaker witness. Mm. So I'm very grateful for his experience, his example, you know, of treading gently. But then when you have, um, I suppose, a, a more widespread understanding, you go in for it strongly. And mm. as they did in England, too. Uh, yeah. Getting rid of slavery. Of course, we haven't got rid of slavery. It's officially yeah, not happening, right. but it's everywhere. We yeah, know everywhere. that there are, there's all kinds of slavery going on now. And it's mm -hmm. a bit like corruption. You know, some countries are rife with corruption, very obviously. In a country like Australia, we're very good at corruption, but we do it more discreetly. That's <laughs> right. all. We're, <laughs> right. you know, white co white collar corruption at, at a right. very high level. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, this has to be um, uh, this has to be noted and acted upon in in every way possible. Mm. Yeah. 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 There's no question. I mean, uh, the there's no question here in the U.S., the prison system the prison industrial system here is just oh. a morphing of slavery from back then uh i am yeah, curious right. if if um are you familiar with uh raw tools and mike martin i was just thinking about as your the passage that you picked from isaiah too um that i mean he does um it's more of a visual manifestation but it taking literal weapons and forging them into tools that that's what he does and he goes all around the country um and maybe the world i don't know does he go share do you know if he goes beyond the us or is this uh, uh, uh i know huge... with shane claiborne's um involvement uh it, it's certainly been picked up here i mean the difference okay. is here after um the the massacre in tasmania australia's gun laws changed dramatically actually under right. a conservative prime minister which surprises uh, yep. Americans, um, uh, but yeah, they, they literally take weapons mm. um, that people hand over mm. and beat them into mm. garden tools mm. that people can use. That's and, great. Yeah, it's, yeah it's absolutely. Incredible. Yeah, I yeah, wish there were more of it. Absolutely. Mm. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a non-violence campaigner who used to try and pay his tax in shovels. They weren't <laughs> actually made from uh, weapons, mm. but you know, he would say, "Go to the tax office in Melbourne and deliver a." 
wheelbarrow loads full of shovels and say, <laughs> this is useful. These are going to help people grow food. Yeah. You know, this is what should be happening instead of our money going to pay for weapons. Yes. So he was directly linking it to uh, the uh, bad expenditure of taxpayers' dollars on weapon systems. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And one of the fascinating things about this particular text is the creativity that it takes to yeah. take a sword yeah. or a spear and turn it into something else. Joe, I yeah. think of um, actions that you did, like um, uh, the grannies against up at Talisman Sabre. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what was that action called? Grannies against, was it Grannies Against War? Or? Grannies for Peace. Quaker Grannies. Quaker Grannies. Quaker Grannies Quaker for grannies. Peace. Quaker Grannies, yeah. So we dressed up in Quaker bonnets and we had a little table with a <laughs> laced cloth and we'd gone to an op shop and bought uh, teapots and nice China and so on, because none of us lived in the town where this was happening. So we had to source our uh, props, you know, from the local op shops. And we went outside the gate and the military wasn't coming. They must have known we were there. And then we thought, well, we've actually, there was just enough space for us to wiggle inside the gate. So we got, uh, folded our table up, took it all inside, had David Bradbury there filming, yeah, it, which yeah. was handy. And uh, then when the military finally came along, we offered them cups of tea and scones and so on and so on <laughs> and had really good conversations, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were a bit surprised. And one of them actually, you know, almost as a voluntary thing, when someone offers you a cake, you take it. And he took uh, something off one of our plates and he put it into his mouth. And then the other soldiers looked daggers at him, you know, like he'd taken something poisonous and he didn't know quite what to do with it, you know, spit it out or swallow it. But he, he swallowed that mouthful, but then he kind of put the rest of it just behind his back and didn't eat the rest, which we thought was pretty funny. Anyway, we had a very good time uh, when they took us from that place. It was about a 40-minute drive, so we had lovely conversations about nonviolence with, mm. the, uh, with the police personnel. And in the slammer overnight, we were kept in there overnight and we had subsequent court appearances. But we had really, really good conversations. And this was something that was a little bit different from what other protesters were doing. Mm. And so it was absolutely nonviolence in action and it gave us the opportunity to talk to quite a number of people about our commitment to peace building yeah. and yeah. what we could do instead of yes, training the military. These exercises, they're rehearsals for war mm, and right. they're dreadful and they cause a lot of damage to the environment as yes, well totally. as costing a lot of money. Um, so true, yeah. it's about 30,000 troops um, Oh, I'm not sure the year that. Uh, I think that was there. 2015. So it's every second year they have this massive gathering of troops from various countries in our region, Americans, of course, in greater numbers than anybody else, and the Australians. And they go on the coast of Queensland, which is where the Great Barrier Reef is, for goodness sake. Mm. You know, they're putting mm. that extraordinary place at risk. Mm. And then in the Northern Territory as well, mm. lots of exercises, Talisman Sabre. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So I wish it would stop. Both Joe and I, though different years, have been um, guests of Her Majesty uh, in that particular... Um, <laughs> Rockhampton Jail. That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got good. put into solitary there and no blankets and oh, no shoelaces, no... Or well, they yeah, thought yeah. you were going to do a damage yeah. to yourself. Uh, see, next time I'll bring lamington scones and yes, cups of tea. That, that was <laughs> And some mates. I mean, we, had, yeah. we sang hymns for most of the night because we had a Catholic woman in there with us as well yeah. who got arrested at a different place that day 
And so we all went back into our childhoods. We'd all we were refugees from other religions, the three Quaker grannies. <laughs> and so we sang hymns and, and we had a fabulous time. You can have a great time in jail, um, right. building solidarity. I mean, yeah. I've had lots of good times in jail, you mm. know, helping people to talk to each other, to do nonviolence mm. training inside the prison cell. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's a possibility. Yeah. Mm. Uh, other creative actions that come to mind, Drew, um, uh, if, if we were, instead of Isaiah, if we were in the same imagery in Micah, it goes on to talk about um, vine and fig trees. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, again, this is um, Joe's uh, creativity, um, which I think comes out of uh, both the, uh, that democracy in practice, or even deeper than democracy that's in practice in, in Quaker groups, and then this provocative um, willingness to, to break the law, that um, the vine and fig tree plantings mm. that we did down at yes. the military base, yes. um, initially uh, you approached um, uh, military people about the white paper that talked about the biggest threat to Australia um, being environmental, mm. uh, being climate change, mm. and um, sought to engage them uh, on that before we um, uh, voluntary for us, but maybe not voluntary uh, for them, planted vine and fig trees on that particular military mm. base. W would you talk a little bit about um, uh, some of that and what goes into uh, the, because there's a cheekiness to your yes, activism. Yes, yes, a cheekiness. I yes, I, I like that. I do like upsetting the apple cart and surprising people a little bit. Yeah. And uh, so we thought about that quite a bit. And there was one Quaker who said to us, it's the wrong time of year to plant vine and fig trees, summer. You know, we said, oh, well, this is when everybody's available, you know. And, in fact, I must confess that after a couple of years, the vine and fig tree had to get moved from where we originally planted yeah. them because they were resurfacing the entry to that military base. So we replanted them, but they did die, which yeah. was a bit of a shame. Anyway, we had a lot of... Um, times when we were we thought about that this was with the peace house community which you were part of at the time we so planned a, another that. anabaptist quaker kind of experiment oh, there's something when we come together yeah hospitality yeah hospitality was great with that house that you had and then i have to tell you another bit that maybe you don't even know about jared but with a few women we went down to the gate of that SAS, it's the very same outfit that has been accused of these dreadful war crimes right now. We went down there. I was with four or five women and we we had our old combi van around the corner and we used that as the paint up and we bared our bottoms and we had a, a letter <laughs> painted on each buttock, N, O, and then W, A, R. And um, so how many buttocks is that? I think we had a space so that the words could be. Could be <laughs> yeah, so we needed six buttocks. We had six buttocks. And so we had a sarong on and we walked around to the gate of this uh, Campbell barracks and we dropped our sarongs. And so we had that no war. <laughs> And it was when Hillary Clinton was visiting Perth and the military, they knew that something was going on, but they didn't know what. Anyway, we did that. And that was quite a lot of fun. You know, yeah. there were a few photos and everything. Talk about cheeky. Very cheeky. That <laughs> Very <one>. cheeky. <laughs> and that evening at about seven o'clock, I was at home and there was a knock on the door and there were these two federal police in plain clothes. And they, I, I said, oh, hello. And who would you be looking for? And they said, we think it's you. And I said, oh, 
okay, well, I'm Joe Valentine. They said, yes, we know that. And so they came <laughs> in and they said, well, now, were you at the Campbell Barracks today? And I said, I, I have to confess, yes, I was. And so my daughter, who's very cheeky as well, said, and she's still got the proof to, to she's still got the proof to show if you want to see it. She knew I'd come home and been really busy. I hadn't even had a shower and washed off the end. Oh, for my, for my buttocks. Anyway, they said, oh, well, Hillary's here for another couple of days. What else have you got planned? What else are you going to do? And I said, I know nothing. I know nothing like Manuel in, uh, what was that show called? Faulty Towers. Towers. Yeah, 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 I said, I know nothing. <laughs> anyway, they said, we could arrest you for bearing your buttocks. I said, oh, come on. The nudist beach is just over the sand dune. The nudist <laughs> beach is right there. Surely you're not going to arrest us for that. Anyway, they didn't, but um, they wanted to, uh, you know, see if there was anything else planned. And really, I did know nothing. I didn't know what anybody else was going to do. And sometimes that's a good tactic too, mm. not to know what others are doing. You, it's good if you mm. think something's going to happen. That'll be a nice surprise, you know, right. as long right. as it's nonviolent. It's not going to hurt anybody. Yeah, right. Mm. Right. No, that's good. That's really good. I love that story. <laughs> that's really good. Fantastic. Yeah. Did you know when about I that? I didn't know about that. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> you would have seemed like you did. You set it up with the cheeky comments and then it just flowed from there. So yeah, a good, I, it was a good setup. Yeah. Um, Joe has I, so many stories through. Right. Like, just constant. Right. I can, I can, I'm picking that up that there's a lot of these kind of stories. That's good. That's good. I was thinking I'm connecting. My brain is just going all over the place right now, but I was thinking about your earlier comments about demilitarization and I was thinking about in the US, I was, you know, one of the things that I think right now, or maybe not that it's a, a something to be hopeful for, but probably the best conversations that could lead to a better conversation in the US is conversations happening at the city level around policing and the mm. defunding mm. police conversation that's happening, that's picking up all over the place, including in my own city here in Harrisburg now, um, that because the tie, it's just so obvious, the two connections, right? Between the, the over-investing in policing and the suppression of poor and black and brown communities um, and how much money gets put into that rather than social services and education. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with militarization, right? And the funding that instead of so many other things that we could do um, to actually bring meaningful uh, transformation to communities. And so anyway, that's just on my mind as we're thinking about this passage and the significance of it and what it means at both a global level, as well as at least for me here at a local level. And I know that in the US, we are unfortunately so much, uh, we're the worst influence as it relates to militarization on this globe. Mm -hmm. And so um, hopefully if the more that we can do to spark, at least here on the grounds, you know, new ways of thinking and imagining of, you know, thriving and flourishing communities, the better, yeah. Well, I get quite scared when I see footage of American police armed oh, yeah. to the teeth. I mean, they are really scary. They they're, look, they're very scary. They're yeah. very scary. That's terrible. The other thing that, um, you know, came to my uh, attention not that long ago was how few years in American history since the War of Independence, the United States has not been at war oh, we're, always that? War. we're always at war we're always at war 16 years 16 yeah. years out of wow. all the years yeah. since the american are, war of independence we're always at war 
Always. It's just terrible. So that's like the never-ending yeah. war. A fights B, B yeah. fights C, then they C fights A, and around it goes. This a never-ending cycle, and it suits the people who make the weapons. So yeah. it's a right. it's to tied in with capitalism, absolutely. Right. I mean, that's it's it. tied in with those congressional districts in the U.S., yes. each of which very cleverly has a military base in it. Mm, so there right. are jobs at stake. There are jobs at risk if you right. really talk seriously about demilitarization people are going to say well, what about the jobs on such and such a base you know right. Right. and that's been a very clever ploy to right. spread it out across the united states and yeah. to have continuous warfare from mm. which some right. private companies profit greatly yeah, go and exactly. smash the place up and then right. get all the contracts to go and yep. clean it up and rebuild yep. mm. that's right i mean it's such a cynical and yeah. horrible process yeah. it yeah. is awful and how come people aren't more awake to that right. i don't know how come people don't really understand and realize that that's what's being that that's what's happening they're being duped all the right. time yeah into militarism continually yeah it's right. not the norm it is not the way humans should be behaving to each other or to the planet. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if Margaret fell towards the end of her life, thought things were getting better. Or I, I wonder if um, you're talking about John Woolman, mm. um, uh, whether he sensed um, the, the great change that he had been involved with. Um, that back to that question that we started with, Joe, I am so aware that when it comes to any nuke stuff, when it comes to demilitarization stuff, when, when it comes to uh, our unprecedented ecological catastrophe that we're living through, you're talking about when Kate first came into the world and I'm looking at little Noah, mm. um, uh, uh, one of my four boys, this one actually, um, looks like me uh, for, for the first time and uh, just realizing with this little one um, what it means that what he's coming into in, in this moment and in part why we called him uh, Noah, Noah. Uh, because we, we need a, an, an ecological vision of hope mm. Um, mm. In, in this moment and mm. uh, Otis uh, because of Otis Moss Jr and Otis Moss III this um this powerful witness of a story that has inspired us that I'm seeking to connect to and, and honor. Um, but as you think about what you've invested your life in and the things that have been won yet, um, things are dark at the moment, Joe. Mm. It's, it's what I gained so much strength from just spending time with you. And you are really one of the biggest influences in my life. Like, um, uh, your, your kindness and um, what you embody and um, what you've put up with me as I've grown, as, um, uh, but the way that you've encouraged me. Um, and yet the, the thing that I've, I draw so much strength from is you do have this joy as you're completely realistic about how dire things are. Um, you, you mentioned the spiritual well to draw from. You, you mentioned um, uh, spirituality that worships with the rest of creation mm. and it, it isn't, doesn't have the rest of reality on mute. Mm. But um, uh, for, for those who are listening in and feel so inspired, whether it's to um, find spiritual communities that practice 
um, a deepening of democracy and encourage social action. Um, what else would you, how, how do we be at your stage of life and still going hard as you are? That's what I'm asking. Oh, golly. Well, I think it is really hard, but I, I've got two little grandchildren now and uh, they're six and three years old. And sometimes I just think, what is the world going to be like when they're my age, which mm. you must be thinking about, Noah, what yeah. is the world going to be like when he's my yeah. age? You know, this is yeah. just, and Drew, I don't know whether you have children or not, but I the do. same yeah, yeah, three. Three boys, three boys, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I mean, I do it for them mm, and I'm yeah. not going to give up. I'm not about to give up and say, oh, it's all too hard. It's, it's We can do it. We can shift the uh, politics. Mm. We can. Well, well, I remember hearing uh, David Suzuki Hmm. years ago I heard him every 10 years for three decades wow. he would come to UWA and he'd say we've just got this decade to turn things around and the second time I heard him he said we've just got this decade to turn things around and the third time he said the same we've just got this decade and this is now 40 years this is now another yeah. decade when he didn't come anymore but you know we haven't done the turnaround hmm. yet yeah. And still people are saying, we've got just this decade. It's getting so, so serious. That's why I think Extinction Rebellion is the way mm -hmm. to go. I'm so impressed with them yes. because they are training in nonviolence. Yeah. Their principles are solid. Mm -hmm. They're really, really good. And they're mostly young, although there's a grandparents group, which I'm connecting into. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's what keeps me going is that thought uh, of integrity on a personal level how can I look my daughters and the, and the grandchildren in the eye if I'm not doing what I can? Mm -hmm. I'm doing less than I used to because, you know, I'm nearly 75 now, but I hope I'll still be going. I've got a few more good arrests in me, I'm sure. <laughs> but the... the um, Let me know when, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it, it's just, you know, I, I can't... It's a bit like Martin Luther standing in front of the door. Yeah. Can't... I can do no other. Mm, I can no do other. no right. other than keep going with the quest for peace and for justice at every level in every direction. Mm. And mm. that, um, you know, for me is, um, well, it's my motto, peace and justice. Towards peace and justice is how I sign everything. Mm. So it's um, a commitment that I made to myself before I allowed myself to get pregnant with daughter number one. Mm. And, you know, I feel an absolute obligation to follow it through, but nurtured by the spirit, nurtured by the companionship mm. of others who mm. are on the same mm. journey. Not enough yeah. of us, but nurturing each other and listening to that still small voice saying, yes, this is what is important. We are sons and daughters of creation. We mm. are part of the bigger picture. Mm. I think it's so important to keep that bigger picture in mind. Yeah. You know, we mm. might have a lot of negatives right around us. We've got a state government that's done great stuff on COVID, but is pretty hopeless on everything else, yeah. like homelessness, for example, yes. not doing enough. Yeah. So, you know, I can speak to Mark McGowan and say, great job on COVID. You're doing a great job. But what about the homeless? And what about the fracking that you're allowing that's in right. our precious Kimberley? Yeah. You know, so we've got forest campaigns. We've mm -hmm. got fracking campaigns. We've got the whole climate campaign. Yeah. We've got the social justice campaigns. We've got a government at the federal level trying to cut 
wages yeah. of workers who haven't had a wage increase for years. Right. So we've got lots of practical campaigns that we know good people are working on. Now, one thing that an activist told me years ago was a little trick. You put yourself on a big sheet of paper in the middle of the room and you draw a circle from where you stand as far as you can reach. That is your circle of influence. They're, they're the thing. And then you step out of that circle and you draw a much bigger circle around the outside. And that's your circle of concern. So in your circle of influence, you might have your own immediate family. I would have my family, my Quaker community, the two or three campaigns that I'm really actively engaged in. And then on the outer one, the circle of concern, I would have lots of other things that I know other people are working on. Mm-hmm. And it, you step back then and you think, okay, I've got my circle of concern. I can do so much with integrity and Mm. with deliberation and with energy. The other things that I'm concerned about that are all connected, of course, everything is connected to everything else. I trust that there are other really good people Mm. who have those issues in their circle of influence. And it just Mm. gives me a little bit of uh, encouragement to keep going. Yeah. You know, one person can't do everything. One yeah. person doesn't even need to try to do everything. But we yeah. need to choose what we can work on to make a difference. Making a difference is the important thing. Yeah. And mm. I'm also very um, still engaged in the Greens Party, which yeah. I helped to form in WA 30 years ago. And I love uh, the Green New Deal ideas. This yeah. is connecting all of those issues. Mm-hmm. And I want us to talk about that more and to make it front yes. and centre of our politics. Getting yeah. people into the state parliament, into the federal parliament at local government level, all of that's important. But really, we need to engage with uh, all of those different communities where people are working their guts out to do the right thing and mm-hmm. to put a halt on the military-industrial complex to the getting back to normal, as they say, mm-hmm. after COVID. Normal wasn't good. Normal <laughs> wasn't good enough. Yeah, no, no. Right. Yeah, so we right. need this green new deal looking mm-hmm. right into the future. And that's very exciting. Yeah, You know, if the younger people have their way and we should listen to them because it's their future, the ones who are in their teens and 20s and 30s now, they see it so much more clearly than I did at that age. I didn't see it clearly then. You know, they see so clearly what is at stake and what is needed. Listen to them. Yeah. Mm. No, that's so good. That's so good. So good. So you're such an encouragement, such an inspiration. And you just dropped so many nuggets of practical wisdom, just like one after the other. I'm just like trying to pick them up just so much. Just thank you for all that you just shared. Yeah. Um, it's it's very meaningful, yeah. Joe, I love you. Oh, thanks, Jared. I love you too. <laughs> uh, Joe, I wish you were here. You could join I know. You would have a I group know. hug. Group that's hug. Right. Yeah, um, that's good. Thanks, Jared. Some sometimes people um, misdiagnose that Quaker um, uh, there aren't clergy, but in fact, with Quakers there aren't laity. That's right. <laughs> Everybody's a minister. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> and I'm so thankful for your vocation, your ministry, uh, the encouragement and example that it's been to me. And uh, thanks for being so generous with your time. Mm. Right well, thank well. you, Jared, because you have been, you know, you followed through on so many things that we've shared together. You follow through. You do the work. You out I there. Try. You you do a great job, and I'm sure you do too, Drew. And I'm looking forward to reading your 
witness book. I yeah. haven't got the whole title in my head, but I know the word witness is in there, and that's, that's right. great. Who will be a witness? Yeah, yeah. who will be a witness? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. us. That's got to yeah. be all of us. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Drew. Thank you oh. so much. And yeah. blessings. And I do send my love to my friends in America. Mm. I mean, yeah. I spent a year there as a teenager, as a foreign exchange student. Yeah. So I've got a lot of uh, feeling for, and Harrisburg, of course, I know that name so well from the Three Mile Island, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. 1979. Yep. That was a yep. big thing. But I've yep. got so many connections and I just feel so sad that, you know, it seems so difficult for you in the United States at the moment, but good yeah. things are ahead. I'm sure good things are ahead yeah. and keep safe. Mm, keep yeah. well. Yeah. Look after Thank your you. boys. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks dear brother. Thanks friends. The inverse podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse?